morning. Uh, for those of you who did not get the uh, the emails this week, uh, just by way uh, of announcement, um, uh, again, most of you know this, but uh, Kathy Phillips, uh, our Director of Children's Ministries, is going to be leaving us at the end of the month. She has uh, been uh, invited by another church in our area to uh, serve there instead, and uh, uh, one way you could look at that is that they stole her. Uh, another way you could look at that is that um, she was uh, good enough to be worth poaching. Uh, either way, it's great for them. It's, uh, it, their, their gain is our loss. Uh, it certainly testifies to uh, who she is, and we're grateful for the service that she has given us and our church, uh, and especially our children over the last uh, almost five years. Uh, what this means for us is that we have some decisions to make in terms uh, not only of uh, replacing uh, somebody to take care of the things that Kathy was taking care of, but also it's been clear to us uh, lately that uh, one of the things we need to figure out as a church is what we do uh, in terms of ministry for children that are uh, getting out of elementary school, which is as, kind of as far as we have been doing ministry uh, for a while. Uh, so this presents sort of an opportune moment for us to think as a church about what we want to be uh, doing going forward and what kind of ministry we want, what, our, what the goals of that are for our children uh, and our youth. And uh, that's a lot of what this family meeting this afternoon is going to be about. As Chris mentioned, after the business portion, we are going to have uh, some discussion time. And uh, w- I want to make it clear that that's, everybody's welcome to be part of that, if, even if you don't have children that are in that age group or if you don't have children at all. Uh, or if uh, your children are grown and out of the house and you're looking forward to grandchildren or not. Uh, we really do want this to be a time when we as a community hear together from the Spirit as to how we're supposed to proceed. I, we, we as elders have every confidence that God is going to guide us in this process, and so we want to have our ears open uh, to be hearing what he has to say. So I invite you to be uh, part of that. And I also want to just make it clear, too, um, the, today's conversation is going to be about, uh, as, as Chris mentioned, it's going to be about our, our vision and our values for the children's ministry. Uh, you may have some more specific questions uh, and or some specific suggestions about particular ways that we might move forward in terms of uh, dividing up the work that Kathy has been doing or people that might be good for that. Uh, we as elders have uh, identified a team of people that are going to be managing the transition and and uh, kind of sifting out some of those ideas. Those people are uh, Jan Kummer, who is part of... Jan, you want to raise your hand? Uh, Jan was part of Kathy's uh, leadership team. Darcy Bissett. Uh, Darcy is uh, on our elder team and, and myself. And so the three of us uh, eagerly await um, your calls and your emails and your buttonholing um, in, uh, in Starbucks or wherever you happen to find us. Um, I can tell you in my case, I really am pretty slow moving, so if you want to catch me, you should be able to do that. Um, but uh, we're, we're eager to hear from you uh, in that regard. And, and uh, again, any, any particular uh, questions, please don't, don't hesitate to bring those to any of us. Ultimately, of course, the elders will have to be making uh, some decisions uh, about uh, structure and about personnel and budget and so forth. Uh, but uh, we, are, we have not made any decisions about that except to decide that we really are open to whatever the Spirit is going to do, and we don't think we're supposed to decide anything other than that we're not making any big decisions just yet. I hope that is 
sufficiently clear. Well, for those of you who are new to New Hope and for those of you who are um, forgetful, we are going through Torah this year. We're going through the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We are roughly around the halfway point. And uh, we are especially blessed to be doing that this year. As many of you know, that we're following the synagogue calendar with the, the schedule of readings that our friends in the synagogues uh, use is exactly the one that we're using. So what folks were talking about yesterday morning in Shul is what we are talking about this morning in church. And the way the Jewish calendar works is it's a lunar calendar, which means that every few years you have to add an extra month in. If your months are only 28 days long, you find yourself, uh, if you don't add some extra months in, you find yourself doing things like celebrating the harvest in the middle of January. So what you have to do is add in a month. And when you add in a month, that means that you have more opportunities to do readings of Torah. See, in other years, uh, the, this week's Torah portion, chapters 12 and 13 of Leviticus, Parshat Tazria, would be combined with next week's Torah portion, Matsura, chapters 14 and 15. Normally, in most years, those two readings are combined and thrown together. But this year, we get a chance to luxuriate in them Now, I know many of you looking at this week's passage were very much looking forward to luxuriating, especially in chapter 13, which has to do with leprous sores. I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you this morning. We are going to deal with them next week, along with chapters 14 and 15. Today, our focus is going to be on chapter 12. But I do want to mention that the uh, picture of John Madden on the cover of the bulletin is uh, not just in reference to fungi and the various ways they might be dealt with. Uh, that is also a foreshadowing of the fact that uh, I will get a chance to emulate the great man himself very soon in that uh, the iPad I ordered has now departed its manufacturing factory in China. It is somewhere in Hong Kong en route. Uh, and once I have it, then I will be able to do the telestrator thing from right here in front of you all and have it show up up there. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this. <laughs> Plus, it's going to be kind of nice to have an iPad and get my email. So uh, this morning, we have Parshat Tazria. And uh, it was, I think, uh, timely for me, at least, this week, that I, was, uh, I spent some time uh, Friday morning with uh, some of my colleagues. Uh, I participate, as many of you know, in uh, the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies, which is uh, in Towson. Uh, they get uh, clergy together uh, regularly to talk about, among other things, Scripture. They get us together to study text. And so as I sat around uh, a table with uh, some friends of mine who are rabbis and who are scholars, who are ministers, uh, we had a chance to talk about this phenomenon that really we've been covering, that we, we keep touching upon as we as we read in Torah together, that God's presence is in the midst of his people. Now we have uh, an Exodus scene that God describes in almost excruciating detail, if you're not into that sort of thing, how he wants his tabernacle built. He says, this is how I want my people to worship me. This is the, the kind of yarn I want you to use to, to make the curtains. This is the kind of metal I want you to use 
to adorn the various implements. And, and this is how big I want it, and this is how tall I want it, and, and this is how I even, God even prescribes exactly how he wants things carried around as they're uh, broken down and set up in the course of the people's travels through the desert. But God says, oh, my presence is going to be there with you. I will dwell there in your midst. And as we'll see next, uh, when we get into numbers, you'll see how the entire Israel, Israelite encampment was all around the central focal point, which was the tabernacle. And so uh, we, we find also, incidentally, not just that God's presence is there in the midst of his people, but that his people have a vital role to play in preparing a place for God to be. Not that God couldn't go wherever he wanted to if he wanted to. He's God, after all. But he invites us to be part of the process of him dwelling there with his people. Tabernacling, if you will. Pitching his tent. And you may remember in the introduction to John's Gospel, which we went through last year, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and that Word is Jesus, yes. That, again, the good default answer if you have a question on Sunday morning. Well, what, reading on, we find out in verse 14 that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. Now, the Greek there, made His dwelling place, is skenosen, comes from the lexical form skeno, which is related... To the Hebrew, Shechan, this is not just an interesting point of etymology, it's deeply significant theologically, because the tabernacle is the Mishkan, comes from that same root, Shechan, this dwelling place, this place where God pitches his tent in the desert, we find is also this dwelling place where God pitches his tent in the incarnation. And just as in Exodus, God's people prepared a place for him to dwell, we get the same thing going on in the New Testament. If you read, not in John's Gospel, but in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 1, we have God sending the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. That virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Incidentally, that's where the Hail Mary comes from. Those of you who, who maybe didn't grow up Catholic, the Hail Mary, that first part comes from that. The second part you get in the next story where Mary visits her, her uh, Aunt Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, uh, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And then the third part, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. That the Catholic Church just made up. But the first two parts do come right here from Scripture. Hey, greetings, you who are highly favored. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. And Mary, just like everybody else in the Bible when an angel shows up, is greatly troubled. <laughs> and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, what 
technical question, Mary says. Um, I'm a virgin. So how's this going to happen? The angel answered, now the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your aunt's going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be barren is, in fact, just entering her third trimester. So just tread carefully around her. Look, nothing's impossible with God. And Mary's response is what? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. So just like we have in Exodus, when the people say, we are God's servants. We're going to build this tabernacle, this dwelling place for you, just as you have said. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said. And so then what we find out in Leviticus, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, is God gives his people very specific instructions as to how he is to be worshipped. He's given instructions in Exodus as to how they're to build this place for him to worship them. And then in Leviticus, he gives specific instructions as to how they are to worship him. And we read last week about Nadav and Avihu, sons of Aaron, who decided that they might improvise on what God had told them about how they were to worship, and God struck them down. Pour encourager les autres. In the future, I imagine, as the priests were teaching the young up-and-coming priests about how to bring the incense and how to slaughter the sacrifices and how to flick the blood, they said now, no pressure, but remember Nadav and Avihu? Don't screw this up. But the point of this, again, was not just that God wanted to make an example of a couple guys who were trying to get too creative. The point is that God was giving his people specific instructions on how to be holy, on how to approach a holy God in the ways that that God had made clear his people were to do that. You must distinguish, God says in chapter 10 of verse 10 of Leviticus, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And, he says to the priests, you must teach the Israelites all the decrees that Yahweh has given them through Moses. So God gives his priests specific charge, specific instructions, not just to carry out the service of worship in the tabernacle. But they're to teach the people, they're to guide them in terms of the way that they are to be holy. Because as we are going to see through the rest of Leviticus, that holiness is not just about making sure you bring an unblemished ram as opposed to one that's lame that you're hoping to get rid of anyway. That's not about just bringing the finest of fine flour rather than stuff that you had just kind of cracked up a little bit. It's not just about making sure that you prepare and wash all the sacrifices properly, that you add the right kind of incense, that the anointing oil is made in the proper way. It has to do with some of the most mundane issues of daily existence, which is why in chapter 11, we have an extensive, detailed, and zoologically informative 
description of the various types of animals that God's people are to eat and to not eat. In the deal, Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, all right, tell the Israelites of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you can eat. You can eat any animal that has a split hoof completely divided and that chews the cud. I'll let you read the rest at home if you like, but some birds you can eat, some birds you can't eat. Some insects you can eat, some you can't eat. Now, it may be that these distinctions are made according to the type of lives that these animals live. The kinds of birds, for example, that are prohibited are carrion birds. These are birds that eat roadkill. Or I guess back in the day it would be trail kill or path kill. But also those animals that basically eat other animals that do not respect, as we're going to see, it's very important, the blood. But there's also a sense in which you kind of look at these and you say, you know, some of these distinctions just seem to be kind of arbitrary. We see kind of a similar thing here in chapter 12. Yahweh says to Moses, all right, tell the Israelites this. A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she'll be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she's unclean during her monthly period. This is coming up in chapter 17. You can look forward to that. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised, and then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter... Then it's for two weeks that the woman will be unclean, just as during her period. And then she has to wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. Now we look at this and we say, huh? A week plus 33 days for a boy, two weeks plus 66 days for a girl. Why? Girls are twice as important is actually one potential answer, Chris. Yeah, actually, some people said, well, you know, the reason for this is that uh, girls, as they grow up, presumably, are going to be doing the kinds of things that have made mom have to go to through these cycles of ritual purity and impurity, too. Girls will not only menstruate, but girls are also going to be presumably having the opportunity to bear children themselves. So there may be a sense that additional time is required to signify the fact that this is going to be something in the future of a girl that isn't going to be in the future of a boy. Others have said, well, you know, the boy at the eighth day is going to be circumcised, but you don't circumcise a girl. So it may be that the mother is basically going to double her period of purification in order to compensate for the fact that there's no blood being shed by the baby girl. And others just say, I don't know. Maybe this is just a residue of, of a, you know, ancient prehistoric patriarchal culture that did actually value boys more than girls and said, yeah, boy, you know, you have a girl, you need 80 days of purification for her. I, we don't know. What we do know 
is that when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she'll be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. And these are the regulations for the woman who gives birth, whether to a boy or a girl. And by the way, if she can't afford a lamb, then she's to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And this way the priest will make atonement for her, and she will be clean. And what we see here is something that's going to be really important for us to remember as we go through the rest of Leviticus, which is we get this language about clean and unclean, about ritually pure and ritually impure. These are categories that are not the same as categories involving sin or guilt. To say that something is unclean is simply a description of a situation that exists. It's not a moral judgment to say that a raven, however effective on the team, on the field, is unclean, but a chicken is clean. Ravens are in the unclean category. Chickens are in the clean category. There's nothing morally wrong about giving childbirth, giving birth to children. In fact, there's a whole lot in the Bible that is pretty enthusiastic about the notion. But a woman who has given birth is going to be ritually unclean for a period of time. As we're going to see, incidentally, all sorts of things are going to make you ritually unclean, including things that God commands you to do. He commanded his people to be fruitful and multiply. Well, if you do that, you're unclean till the evening. You can't go to the sanctuary. There are things you can't do because you're ritually unclean. Nothing wrong with what you did. Let's be clear about that. But you're ritually unclean. You're ritually impure. You're not able to bring the sacrifices because you're in a state of ritual impurity. Nothing wrong with you. just means that there's some limitations on what you can or can't do. So as we read this, and I know how enthusiastic we all are about reading the rest of Leviticus, bear in mind this difference between something being unclean or ritually impure and something being sinful or wrong or morally impure. And there's a sense in which God does try to cultivate in his people as they are being led to pursue holiness, a, a, an aversion to things that are unclean. There's a, he even uses in, in uh, chapter 11 this language of, you, here, here are the birds that you are to detest. And, and again, I think it's, it's not that you're you know, supposed to think that those crows are very, very, very bad. It's that, you know, those, that is far away from what is even going to be acceptable to me. I cannot think about those birds in the way that I would think about a delicious turkey, for example. And you get the, a hint of this in, in Acts. You may remember this story where Peter, the Apostle Peter, Cephas, Simon Peter, Jesus' A number one disciple, he's up on the roof praying at about noon. And he became hungry. He wanted something to eat. And so while the food is being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. 
The voice spoke to him a second time, Don't you dare call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Then immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Well, while Peter is wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men who were sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Now, Cornelius, as you may remember, was a centurion. Centurion in the Roman army is going to be a what? Don't say Jesus. It's going to be what? A Gentile. He's going to be a Jew. Uh, Not a Jew. He's going to be a Gentile. What do Jews do with Gentiles? Keep an arm's length. Right? So Peter's wondering about the meaning of this vision. And sure enough, these emissaries from a Gentile show up and they ask Simon, uh, who is Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, there are these three guys looking for you. And you almost get the sense that, like, remember, he's up on the roof. They come to the door and ask about him, right? So guys who are being sent by a Roman centurion are looking for you. You're probably going to stay on the roof and maybe crouch down. (laughs) And and the Spirit says, you know, Simon, these three guys are looking for you. Get up. Go downstairs. Don't don't hesitate to go with them. It's all okay. Because actually, I'm the one who sent them. Peter went down said to the man, all right, I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you here? And they said, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. God had to explode Peter's limited understanding of holiness in order then to invite in those who once had been kept at arm's length. And as the rest of the story goes, Peter goes and speaks to Cornelius, testifies to him about Jesus, and Cornelius is baptized. But there is also an instinct, even among us, even despite the fact that we have these great stories about God exploding our former categories of holiness and unholiness, there, there is and there has always been in the church this sense of uneasiness on the part of some people about just how concrete, just how physical, just how real the things are that God does. There's always this temptation to make everything transcendent, to make everything ethereal, to make everything spiritual, but not to acknowledge just how plain and mundane and physical the ways are that God works with us. Certainly this was an issue for many people in the early church, when they read this Old Testament with this God who keeps demanding these sacrifices and creates matter, and then, horror of horrors, actually takes on flesh himself. Probably the first great heretic of the church was Marcion. Marcion basically rejected the entire Old Testament, 
all the Gospels except John, or except Luke's, and uh, he, he also rejected many of the letters in the New Testament because they just were a little bit too earthy for him. And we read in the second century, the great church father Tertullian responding to Marcion with holy sarcasm. Oh, come now, Marcion, beginning from the nativity itself. Go ahead. Declaim against the uncleanness of the generative elements within the womb. Go ahead, Marcion. Talk about just how icky it is, these filthy concretion of fluid and blood, the growth of the flesh for nine months out of that very mire. Go ahead, Marcion. Describe with distaste the womb as it enlarges from day to day, heavy, troublesome, restless even in sleep, changeful in its feelings of dislike and desire. Evidently, Tertullian had been married to somebody who had sent him out for ice cream at some point in the night. (laughs) And then said, oh, I don't want that. Thankfully for me with Mary, it was chocolate cake, and the place that she wanted it from was right down the street from where I worked. So that made it easy. But go ahead, in vain now, likewise, against the shame itself of a woman in childbirth, which, however, ought to be honored, don't you think, in consideration of that peril, or held sacred, Marcion, in respect of the mystery of nature. Of course, you're going to be horrified also about that infant, which is shed into life with the embarrassments which accompany it from the womb. You likewise, of course, loathe it even after it's washed when it's dressed out in its swaddling clothes, graced with repeated anointing, smiled on with nurses' fawns. This reverend course of nature, you, Marcion, are pleased to spit upon. And yet, my friend, how'd you get here? In what way were you born? See, if you're going to detest a human being at his birth, after what fashion are you going to love anybody? God is not watching us from a distance, contrary to the writings of the great theologian Bette Mittler. God is very much deeply, intimately, and passionately concerned about the reality of the life that he has given us. And we see in Leviticus this story of God teaching his people what it means to be holy, to walk faithfully with him in the lives that they will live, in all of their mundane particularities. And we see, getting back to Mary, in chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel, that Jesus' family did precisely what the law had commanded. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, the baby was named Jesus. The angel, the name the angel had given him before he had even been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, 33 days later, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now what we know from the sacrifice that was brought is two things. One, that Mary and Joseph were being precisely faithful 
what God had called them to. However arbitrary the timing, the specific sacrifice may have seemed, they were faithful. We also know, because they brought a pair of doves or two young pigeons rather than one dove and one pigeon and a lamb, that they couldn't afford a lamb. That God himself took on flesh among a family that was not living in some giant temple palace that wasn't floating above the muck and the mire of the daily life of a working person. But that God himself took on flesh with this very, very ordinary family. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. A sword will pierce your own soul, too. There's also there a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but she worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And then when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. The grace of God was upon him. The transcendent and the imminent, the earthly and the heavenly, in some ways the sacred and the profane, they're all there all around us, all at the same time. It is both in the most soaring and majestic of our spiritual experiences and in the simplest, most mundane acts of obedience that God meets us. Because Like the Christmas carol says, he did not despise the virgin's womb. The ultimate vision, of course, as we see in Revelation, is that heaven and earth become the new heavens and the new earth. And the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven upon the earth. The final destination is one 
in which everything is bound up together in one glorious whole. But for now, we live in some tension. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that there is much about this word of yours that we find difficult. There's much of it that we are puzzled by, much of it that, if we're honest, we might have rendered differently if you had given us the opportunity. We thank you for the fact that you didn't. We thank you for the fact that you are holy and that you're the one who tells us how to recognize what is sacred and what is profane that you are free to set those categories and you're free to explode them as you see fit. We're grateful that you do not despise the mundane realities of the lives that you've given us, but that you sanctify those even as you sanctify the things that we might think more pure. We're deeply grateful, Lord for the word that you've given us. And we pray that we would be faithful to hear your voice as you speak to us in it. Give us the grace to follow you as your faithful servants, to do the things that you've called us to do, not just for the sake of our own holiness or the holiness of our community, but for the sake of your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.